Is it naive to think there is an alternative to war? Or maybe it's naive to think there isn't. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for the few, the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. One might think that in the 21st century, there are so many ways big corporations can make gobs of money, they really wouldn't need to fall back on the ancient ugliness of war to make such huge profits. After all, here we are well into this century. One might think there really would be better ways of making foreign policy than thrusting lead into the flesh of other people. Yet, here we are with a surprisingly intense war, almost exclusively against civilians in Ukraine, in which uh, one would hope that the old Cold War of the 50s belligerents against each other yet again were not happening. But it is. And when civilians are dying, when their towns are being destroyed, as with all populations under massive bombing attacks, what a surprise, of course, they fight back. See England in the Second World War, Vietnam and America's war there, for some obvious examples where such brutal attacks from the air fail. As with those nations, Ukrainians are never going to prefer a peace if it means making them subjects of Putin's imperial Russia. So really, how did we get here yet again? In a new essay, our returning guest, Lawrence Whitner, asks, Is there really no alternative to this primitive and immensely destructive behavior? Though it has escaped us again and again, the answer is yes. His essay is entitled, There is an Alternative to War. But if it's been tried so many times and failed, why would anyone think that it could actually happen, that there would be an alternative, alternative to war, and that could actually happen. Lawrence Whitner is professor of history emeritus at SUNY Albany and the author of Confronting the Bomb, put out by Stanford University Press. Thank you for being back with us, Professor Whitner. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Bert. Glad to be here. Well, there have been so many recent wars. Syria's civil war, the Saudi war on Yemen, First, Russia's, and then our war in Afghanistan, Bush's war in Iraq, Somalia continues to be at war. It goes on and on. Yet the Russian invasion of Ukraine seems to be unique in its blatant aggression and ferocity. It strikes me that nationalism and imperialism, which have been plaguing the world for oh, about a thousand years, are the venerable culprits. You write, 
the war in Ukraine provides us with yet another opportunity to consider what might be done about the wars that continue to ravage the world. Is this war the latest example of nationalism and imperialism? And what do you make of the continued appeal of those isms when it causes so many deaths and so much destruction? What is the appeal of those isms, nationalism and imperialism? What what drives people to them? Well, uh, first, I think that uh, the Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine is, in fact, an uh, imperialist war. Uh, Putin has, has stated uh, numerous times uh, that he believes uh, uh, Ukraine is Russian land. Uh, and, uh, in fact, uh, the, the uh, Russian government is, is engaged in um, conquering it and uh, annexing it. Uh, the, the annexation uh, took place uh, previously, and, and now it's uh, supposedly part of Russia. Uh, and there seems no end in sight to uh, Russia's gobbling up of uh, Ukraine. So, yes, uh, I think the war is, is the same old stuff as in the past. Uh, it's an imperial war uh, by, by a major power. Um, why does this sort of thing happen? Well, I think there are a number of things that, that drive uh, nationalism and uh, nationalist ambitions. Uh, for one thing, there's a, a sense of uh, superiority yeah. uh, to other people, yeah. uh, a, a, a fear of other uh, people. Uh, there are uh, material interests involved, uh, land, uh, resources, uh, weapon sales, and so on, or, or you know, in, in uh, summary, greed, uh, at the expense of, of, of other uh, people who are uh, supposed to be conquered to uh, satisfy these, these uh, greedy um, uh, ambitions. Uh, and also, and I don't think we should uh, forget this, uh, there's a lack of restraint to um, uh, carrying out one's uh, prejudices and uh, uh, greed on the world scene. Um, there's no governance on the uh, global level. Uh, there's no uh, effective international law or law uh, enforcement. And uh, consequently, we're in a, a sort of Wild West situation on the global level where uh, gunslingers roam free and able uh, to do what they want, uh, at least until another gunslinger uh, shoots them down. <laughs> and it's it's funny, but it's incredibly tragic. I mean, I just, I, I, I can't really, I, I would like to think that the appeal of nationalism would be like, you know, getting old at least, but it's not. And people who listen to this show regularly know that I'm kind of a fanatic about the First World War. And since nationalism was, nationalism was really involved there, here were the young men of all these different countries who, in theory, could have said, wait a minute, what the heck are we fighting for? We're all brothers here. We're all being used by the, the imperialist, uh, uh, you know, wealthy people, wealthy, powerful interests of each country. But it was nationalism that, that superseded their sense of uh, brotherhood with, with one another, with the people 
that they were supposed to hate and kill. And since the, it was kind of inevitable, the First World War, uh, in a sense, after the Franco-Prussian War of 1871, uh, there was, French had a quite logical fear of Prussia and the United Germany. Uh, there was little question that the French would strike back at Germany after that war. It was just a question of time. Kaiser Wilhelm was terribly jealous of the strength of the British Navy. Serbia wanted independence from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Then, after the horrible outcome of the Versailles punishment of Germany alone, there was a dream of a League of Nations. Its hoped-for intention was, as you said, quote, to consider what might be done about the wars that continue to ravage the world, end of your quote. What were the factors back then which might still be with us uh, blocking such a clearly useful international body? Well, uh, I think we can uh, point to uh, two things. Uh, the first are uh, structural po- structural uh, problems uh, with the League of Nations. Uh-huh. Um, and the major one was uh, it, it was uh, set up uh, so that uh, uh, for action uh, to be taken by the League, uh, there needed to be a unanimous vote uh, for that action. Uh-huh. Now, huh. getting all nations of the world to agree on something yep. is... It's almost impossible. It's sort of like getting all, all uh, people to agree on on, on the same thing, mm. uh, and therefore uh, the league was handicapped by this uh, structural uh, flaw. But beyond that was something more uh, fundamental, uh, and that was that uh, conflicts among nations and before that uh, territories had uh, existed for uh, thousands of years. Um, that the resolution of these uh, conflicts often uh, was through military power. And so uh, nations uh, simply weren't willing to uh, scrap those uh, traditional practices, those, those conflicts, those wars, and, and accept uh, some kind of, of uh, global authority, some kind of, uh, of world government. Uh, and it's 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 hard uh, to get rid of a really bad habit, uh, and war was really bad habit. So uh, you know, while they understood the the problem, uh, they couldn't quite accept the the uh, solution to it. So they uh, created a weak league, and in fact, the league wasn't able to act uh, effectively. Well, the idea of of a world government, I. My sense is, and I may be wrong, that the League of Nations was not intended to be a world government, but merely merely a body to prevent wars and to have the various nations talk to each other. But today, at least in America, well, and in Europe too, there's a, a burgeoning right-wing uh, nationalism. Uh, it's, it's tremendously uh, uh, appealing. And, uh, you know, I... I, I I wonder about the the again the appeal of of nationalism uh, back then and and today. Why, even though there've been all these horrible wars, the the, the idea of uh, working together in a League of Nations or in United Nations 
uh, just doesn't happen. And clearly, after the Second World War, which was even more destructive than the first phase of that war, it was the same war, the United Nations was created to be the international body that would do what your new essay calls for. And there was a lot of hope, I can't help but think, when it was created that after the just unbelievable horror of the Second World War, that there would be a lot of enthusiasm for United Nations. And and we're going to talk about the various aspects of the goals of the United Nations. But tell us, please, and, and, and the United Nations one would think would would fit in nicely to to what you're calling about, you know, developing alternatives to war. So what have been some of its successes and failures, the United Nations? Tell us about that, please. Well, uh, the United Nations has managed uh, to pull the nations of the world together to uh, discuss global issues and to uh, uh, create global treaties and rules, uh-huh. as well as to uh, avert or end many international conflicts, and to use U.N. uh, peacekeeping forces to uh, separate groups engaged in violent conflict. It's also uh, sparked global action for uh, social justice, uh, environmental sustainability, uh, world health, and economic development. On the other hand, the United Nations has not been as effective as it uh, should be, especially when it comes to fostering disarmament and ending war. All too often, the international organization remains no more than a lonely voice for uh, global sanity in in a world dominated by powerful uh, war-making nations. Uh, So the obvious uh, way to make it more effective is to uh, provide it uh, with greater authority uh, and Mm -hmm. more resources. And greater authority. Whoa, boy, that would rub a lot of Americans the wrong way. <laughs> and in the '60s, it's amazing how it goes on. You know, I remember in the, you know, '60s when the John Birch Society was considered really far to the right. Well, I think the Republican Party of today, the Trumpist Party, has left that. Appellation of of them as as a right wing, way out there because they're more to the right. And in the '60s, one used to see bumper stickers which said, "U.S. out of the UN, UN out of the U.S." Maybe you're not old enough to remember that, but I do. I get the oh, I, <laughs> I get the impression that today's far right Republicans enthusiastically today share that sentiment. U.S. out of the U.N., U.N. out of the U.S., and that that bizarre call is is more powerful today than ever. Your call for strengthened global governance would be anathema to them today. Can you anticipate and then answer their arguments, please? Well, uh, for one thing, they they uh, like to say that uh, strengthened global governance, or, or the United Nations, generally speaking, in, in its weak current form, is un-American. Um, right. But a, a, a federal system, uh, a system in mm. which uh, governance works on different uh, levels, um, happens to be the American system, uh, in which uh, localities, states, and the uh, federal government share power. 
uh, a stronger United Nations would merely uh, supply an additional uh, level of this kind of governance, uh, governance at the global level, which is really missing, although we do have governance at the uh, lower levels. So it's actually uh, quite American. Um, mm. uh, sometimes uh, the right wing uh, talks about uh, the UN or a or a heightened international authority uh, as leading to a dictatorship. Mm. Um, but it's actually just another level of law and order, which uh, conservatives and right-wingers uh, claim to want and would end international anarchy, which they uh, claim to dislike. Yeah. Um, uh, furthermore, they, they would charge that a, that a stronger uh, global governance is uh, too expensive, but actually, uh, that's not true. Uh, it would be a whole lot uh, cheaper than uh, constant U.S. wars and uh, constant U.S. Uh, policing of the world, which actually eats up most of the federal budget uh, today. And, and, and in fact, uh, strengthening uh, global governance and uh, reducing uh, the U.S. military burden m might actually lead to a massive tax cut here at home. Wow, that's an interesting angle that I, frankly, have not heard before. And I would think, boy, if, if somebody, uh, you know, put that in an ad campaign, it might be uh, rather popular. Save money. We're spending, I mean, your dollars, your tax dollars, mine and yours, Lawrence, are going, I mean, just, they're, they're going to these military contractors, these weapons contractors who are making huge profits. A, what is it getting us? And B, it would save us a lot of money if we weren't doing that. But I, I haven't heard that uh, argument put before, that, that a U.N. federal system like the one we have where there's, you know, shared power that, uh, you know, leave to the states what are the states uh, to twist uh, an old, uh, you know, Shakespeare uh, quote uh, that... Um, that we could actually save money and that that's more, dare I say, conservative in the true sense of the word conservative. Well, we started off on a fascinating discussion thus far. Bert Cohen here, for those who have just tuned in. Our guest today is a, a professor of history emeritus at SUNY Albany, uh, Lawrence Whitner. We're talking about his essay, There Is an Alternative to War. Boy, that's people don't even think about that much these days. Um, America's war in Vietnam had no chance of victory, not ever. I have no idea what victory uh, would have even looked like in anybody's imagination. I mean, the Vietnamese were, I mean, they, they beat the French occupiers in 1954 after they got free of uh, Japan's uh, uh, occupation when they were being bombed. I, I remember in 1972, a British headline in big, bold letters, Nixon's Christmas Deluge of Death. Now, that was hardly the way to win the hearts and minds of the people of Vietnam. It made them fight back more. But, of course, it was part of Nixon's secret peace plan and had the appealing title to which you refer. I wonder whoever thought of this, but, boy, they, they earned their money. Peace through strength. That was the slogan 
that was used uh, during the, uh, I believe it was the 1972 campaign. Popular as the words may still be in the United States, you say this policy, peace through strength, has severe limitations, which, frankly, I don't think many people get these days. They still buy into the idea of peace through strength. Tell us, please, about the severe limitations of this policy. Sure. Um, well, actually, the, the term uh, peace through uh, strength um, uh, was used for hundreds of years. Uh, really? And it wow. basically meant um, that uh, peace is, is based on uh, building up a nation's military strength. Uh, but the, the problem is that a military uh, buildup by one nation is uh, perceived by other nations as a danger uh, to their security. Uh, consequently, uh, they usually respond to the uh, perceived threat by uh, strengthening their own armed forces and uh, forming military alliances. Uh, in this situation, an escalating atmosphere of fear uh, develops, which often uh, leads to war, arms races, and then war. Uh, so, if in, in, in fact, if uh, military strength uh, brought peace, um, war would not have raged over the centuries, or for that matter, uh, be raging uh, today. And and yet, somehow, people believe it. it. It's it's got some appeal to it. If you think, well, I my country doesn't have a lot of strength. It doesn't have much military, and the other guys are much much stronger militarily than we are. And the U.S. was hugely more uh, militarily strong than than Vietnam. Um, so why is it that, that the idea that, well, they're so much stronger, let's not bother fighting them. I mean, there are people today who, who still think, well, maybe Ukraine, the people of Ukraine should, should not be fighting, and just that's the way to end the war. Why this this idea of one country is so much stronger than the other is going to pound them into the sand. Why, why doesn't that work? I mean, geez, who wants to be pounded into the sand and bombed and destroyed? Right, right. right. Yeah, uh, you can see why, why from, the, from the standpoint of uh, smaller, uh, weaker nations, this, this uh, philosophy of uh, peace through strength doesn't help them at all. So right. uh, they've, in fact, often led uh, campaigns uh, to restrain the major military powers. And, and indeed, that's a key reason uh, for NATO expansion into Eastern yeah. Europe. There are all these uh, small countries, uh, Latvia, Lithuania, uh, Estonia, uh, Czechoslovakia, and, and so on, that, that wanted a reassurance uh, uh, against these these uh, overweening powers like uh, Russia, for example. Um, so again, it, it didn't lead to uh, peace at all. Yeah, and and quite frankly, I think one can see that I mean, Russia, they, they know their history a little bit, and they've been invaded from the West again and again and again. And the idea of a stronger NATO, of Ukraine being involved in NATO, I could understand, uh, might feel like a, a threat to them. But, of course... Yes, we, they feel that, too. They do. And, and yet, of course, they're, you know, terribly destructive, you know, just war basically against civilians. 
uh, it does go a little bit overboard, <laughs> I think. <laughs> you know, maybe there could have been negotiations early on, but uh, one could see that, that Russia could say, hey, an expanded NATO is a threat to us. Uh, but maybe there were other ways. I wonder, my memory is not all that great, and I haven't paid that much attention to the UN, but did Putin, did Russia at all, to your knowledge, say, hey, we don't want an expanded NATO? Did they go to the UN, for example? Um, they never really did or or uh, sought assistance. They, they, uh, the the uh, government there uh, complained for a, for a time uh, about NATO expansion. Uh, I'm sure it was very unpopular yeah. Uh, yeah. with the Russian uh, leadership. Um, but uh, I don't actually think that was the major reason uh, for the Russian invasion. Huh. Uh, I think it was more of an excuse, uh, just as the uh, Russian government used the uh, claim that uh, Ukraine was being run uh, by Nazis and it, it was carrying out a genocide uh, against uh, Russian-speaking people and so on. So I think that the uh, fundamental uh, cause of the Russian invasion was this sense that, that uh, Russia uh, should be uh, restoring uh, its greatness, and to do that, uh, it needed to, to uh, control yeah. and uh, annex uh, Ukraine and other regions that have been uh, split off from the uh, Soviet Union and before that from the uh, czarist empires of the past. Oh, my. And uh, nostalgia. I did a show, oh, gosh, a few weeks ago about nostalgia being uh, a, a, a motivating factor to wars, a great restore Russia's greatness. Please, can we just, I mean, uh, they uh, it's great for their military, I suppose. Uh, and that's, they have, the military has tremendous power, you know, political power, not just in Russia, but in a lot of countries around sure. the world. And has been demonstrated again and again, as you put it, governments are not entirely wrong about their perception of danger. For danger, for nations with great military power, really do bully and invade weaker countries. End of your quote. The so-called great powers, a concept that's been around for a long time, unfortunately, the, the so-called great powers have exhibited this behavior. Of course, we know the U.S. and the U.K. and the old Soviet Union are the great powers. But you list you list some others. Please elaborate. And and what have they done? along these lines. Do these great powers, I mean, who are some of these other great powers besides the U.S., the U.K., and, and the old Soviet Union? Do they, who are they, and do they really have alternatives uh, about, uh, to, to the behavior that they've exhibited again and again and again? Well, uh, among other great, great powers of, of the past, uh, there were um, Spain, mm -hmm. France, uh, Germany, uh, Japan, and uh, China, which uh, threw their their uh, military weight uh, around for centuries, uh, building up uh, great empires in the uh, process. Uh, Spain conquered most of Latin America. Right. Uh, France, uh, when not engaged in uh, European wars, and it uh, fought plenty of those too, uh, carved out an empire in, in, in Africa and Asia. 
Uh, Germany, of course, was a major uh, military force in World Wars One and Two, and also uh, acquired African colonies. Uh, Japan, as your uh, listeners might recall, uh, ran wild in Asia during the 1930s and and yes. early 1940s. Um, they did have alternatives, of course, but they chose uh, military buildups and uh, finally. Uh, military aggression. Um, Japan and uh, Germany, uh, though, have not behaved uh, like this since 1945, um, which is an indication that they could follow an alternative path uh -huh. and uh, prosper also. In fact, one of the great stories of the post-World War II period has been the uh, revival of the economies of uh, Germany and Japan, uh -huh. uh, and they were not busy uh, conquering other lands during that period. They were simply uh, sticking to their own affairs, and uh, they did very well thereby. So they did have an alternative, uh, and in this case, uh, they took it. Interesting. The, the, the realities of, of economic success seems to seem to be in the shadow of the uh, emotional unreality of, yeah, war, yeah, how much fun that is. Oh, my goodness. Uh, but, you know, one would think every now and then reality might enter the picture, economic reality especially. And as you point out, Japan and Germany, without wars, gosh, what a surprise. They've done a lot better. Their economies have done a lot better. Wow. Yeah, it would be nice if uh, that could be uh, more front and center. And, you know, it's, it's always easy to criticize the, the uh, uh, interest in avoiding war. It's always easy to criticize that as isolationism, as has gone on again and again and again. Can these nations be, I mean, talk about isolationism first and the, and the, and the, the charge, the easy charge of, of, of isolationism. What, what's your response to that? Well, uh, isolationism was a, a term used during the 1930s when uh, substantial um, uh, portions of the um, uh, U.S. government and the U.S. Uh, public uh, were determined to uh, stay out of what they called Europe's wars that is, uh, Nazi right. uh, aggression uh, during the 1930s uh, and early 1940s. Um, but they, they ultimately found, or, or the United States ultimately found, it couldn't stay out. And in fact, uh, Pearl Harbor was, was bombed and the U.S. was uh, at war, uh, whether it liked it or not. So um, uh, that, the, the uh, futility of that policy uh, was used to uh, label um, uh, uh, nations and movements that were for peace and were hoping that their uh, countries could could uh, stay out of uh, conflicts, as uh, as most nations did, for example, during uh, the U.S. war in Vietnam. Uh, mm -hmm. The the uh, NATO nations were not pulled into that war, uh, and uh, uh, they, they 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 managed to uh, stay out of it. Still, isolation um, or, or isolationism um, has its its uh, drawbacks. Um, 
uh, it, it may keep an, an individual nation or a number of nations uh, free from the horrors of war uh, engaged in by other nations. But, of course, it does nothing to uh, stop the war, a war that ironically might end up engulfing that isolated nation anyway. Um, also, of course, if the war is won by an aggressive expansionist power, uh, or one grown arrogant thanks to its military victory, the isolated nation might be next on the victor's uh, agenda. So it, in this fashion, uh, short-term safety uh, can be purchased, or it is sometimes purchased, at the price of uh, longer-term insecurity and uh, conquest. Um, a good example of two nations that have sought to, and, and sought uh, successfully, to uh, stay out of war um, since 1945 um, is uh, Sweden and uh, Finland. Um, and they, they uh, stayed non-aligned during the uh, Cold War, although well, I should add they were both well-armed and planned to defend themselves if attacked. Um, but uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, has led to a reassessment of that policy oh. and that they have now applied to, to join NATO. So uh, isolation, they concluded, uh, simply wasn't working. Um, in this case, of course, they, they, they chose to uh, join NATO, but I suspect um, that they would actually rather to see uh, strengthened uh, global governance. Uh, that, mm -hmm. is, that would be their ideal. And in fact, they, they've been two nations in recent decades that have um, uh, supported uh, UN actions from uh, disarmament treaties to uh, attempts to end, end wars. Uh, so I think they've, uh, you know, they they actually uh, support both. Their their near-term uh, solution to what they now view as the Russian menace is to join NATO, but longer term, they really love to to see a uh, strength in the United Nations. Uh huh. Yeah. There's there's the ideal hope for, it, and then there's the. Uh current reality that's and and they're no dummies uh these scandinavian nations they they they've been through a lot i mean heck norway was occupied by the nazis and yes yeah. right right and 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 after the uh, second world war uh realizing that their uh, neutrality uh availed them nothing no. uh since they were they were conquered anyway by the nazis uh they joined nato uh, interesting. So much more to talk about. If you just tuned in, dear listener, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, a Professor of History Emeritus at SUNY Albany, uh, Lawrence Whitner, who's written a, a new essay, There Is an Alternative to War. And it is anything but naive. And we mentioned a little bit about isolationism. And I, I think it's interesting that back in, I think it was 1992, when Pat Buchanan was running for president, a Republican, he was uh, labeled uh, uh, as an isolationist. And now we have a few other uh, Republican senators on the right who are also can be uh, accused of being isolationist. There's Rand Paul, for example. Uh, Mike Lee from Utah has... Uh, spoken against uh, continuing uh, for the U.S. Uh, to support Ukraine. What about these 
Republicans on the right, I mean, it seems in a way kind of, dare I say, respectable and and not entirely crazy <laughs> for, for these uh, right-leaning Republicans to be uh, concerned about uh, you know the the continued dominance of of the U.S. Uh, uh, you know war uh, making uh, military machine contractors in in U.S. foreign policy. What about these uh, right wing Republicans who can be called isolationists? Well, all right. But let me go back to the 1930s uh, for the minute. Sure. During the 1930s, uh, isolationism had its own. Uh, strategy uh, for national defense, and that was to uh, support a, a, a strong military. Uh, hmm. it, the the, the um, goal um, uh, stated isolationist groups like the uh, American Legion was, uh, huh. well, or the uh, strategy was uh, keep out, uh, keep ready. Uh, so they, they, huh. they didn't want to fight Europe's wars, as they said, that is, uh, restrain the Nazis uh, through through intervention or uh, supporting uh, beleaguered uh, Britain and, and so on. But uh, they wanted the United States uh, to be ready to to uh, fight wars on its own. So uh, that's what they meant by isolationism. Uh-huh. And uh, the the current uh, Republican uh, critics of of uh, U.S. Um, backing for uh, Ukraine are all uh, strong supporters of a, a, a bigger U.S. military budget. They just don't want to uh, support Ukraine. They say, you know, who cares about Ukraine sure. after all? Uh, the, the real goal here is uh, U.S. Uh, military power, and we can defend ourselves. Uh-huh. We don't have to be involved in the United Nations or, or involved in uh, collective uh, security. Uh, we want to uh, go it alone, and indeed, that's that's uh, Trump's uh, position too, by and large. Uh, when he he uh, talked about uh, uh, his America First uh, strategy, that is, he didn't want to be in, involved in uh, supporting other uh, countries. He wanted Americans uh, to rally around the American flag and around strictly American interests. And, uh, and build up the U.S. military and nuclear weapons forces. So it really cannot be said that these right-wing Republicans who are against U.S. support for Ukraine are uh, actively uh, supporting alternatives to war. That would be... Uh... No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. They just want it to be an uh, exclusively a U.S. war uh, for U.S. national interests and to help with other nations. Uh-huh. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Well, the the UN, the United Nations, has a lot of problems. As you know, perhaps the biggest one is the Security Council. African nations have been most vocal about the need uh, for reform of the Security Council. And even Joe Biden spoke recently about the need for reform of this powerful, very exclusive small body within the United Nations, the Security Council. One of the problems with the Security Council, and what would you suggest as corrective actions? I mean, it's, you know, it was created a, a long time ago. Who's on the Security Council? 
what what should be done with that? What are the problems? What are the, some some of the corrective actions you would suggest? Well, in the UN uh, uh, Security Council, any one of its five permanent members, uh, which are the United States, Russia, China, Britain, and France, can uh, veto uh, UN action for peace. And this is often what they do, uh, uh, enabling uh, Russia, for example, to uh, block Security Council action to end its invasion of Ukraine. Um, it would make sense, I believe, to uh, scrap the veto or uh -huh. change the, uh, permanent members uh, or develop a rotating membership or uh, simply abolish the uh, Security Council and uh, turn over action for peace uh, to the UN General Assembly, an, an entity that, unlike the uh, Security Council, uh, represents virtually all nations of the world. Wow. Yeah, interesting. To give them that much power, and, and I heard some... Uh, Spokespeople for uh, Nigeria saying how, you know, they're, they're the biggest country in Africa. They're completely <clears throat> left out of it. And a lot of action is going on in Africa now. China's there <coughs> big time uh, right now. Right. And, uh, Russia is too. Yeah. The, the development of, of, uh, of Africa. I mean, heck, there was the scramble for Africa that led, you know, the, <laughs> before World War One. Africa's always had a lot of natural resources. You know, there was rubber in the, the old Belgian Congo. But they got they got virtually no power. And, boy, I, it doesn't quite seem right to me. I mean, I, and not just from a, a moral and ethical point of view, but in terms of the future of the world economy. I mean, trade, you know, is the big thing that goes on. It's to, to leave out... And to, to shut out the African nations from, from any real power in the United Nations, I don't know. It just seems kind of dumb to me. And maybe, maybe, maybe there's a hint of racism in there. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of racism in the world, uh, systemic racism, uh, let's face it. And one, thing's, one thing critics of the United Nations cite is that each nation around the world has its own set of values. They, like the U.S., are loath to have other values imposed on them. We can all relate to that. As you say, each nation looks exclusively after its own interests, which often leads to war. Could there be, could there be universal values that are, you know, not imposed on others, but that is, uh, as the, one of the most powerful initiators of the United Nations, Eleanor Roosevelt, hoped for some universal values that the United Nations, you know, that, that could be limited, not dominant, but if so, what might those be that the UN could adhere to and enforce universal values? Do tell. Well, uh, actually, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt uh, drafted the UN Declaration of uh, Human Rights, yeah. and uh, that was adopted uh, by the United Nations, uh, agreed to, uh, and those rights, therefore, uh, uh, can be um, uh, supported and and uh, called for uh, by the United Nations and nations around the world can 
point to those things, and uh, citizens groups, uh, human rights groups around the world can point to this UN Declaration of uh, Human Rights as the um, the uh, agreed upon uh, rules uh, for all nations, mm. and that's very important. So uh, the UN uh, has dealt uh, not only uh, with warfare, although not not uh, totally uh, effectively so, so far, right. but it's also uh, developed uh, agreements uh, among the nations of the world as to what the um, uh, a whole range of, of uh, other uh, policies uh, should be. Uh, the UN also passed a, a, a declaration of economic and uh, social rights hmm. uh, that the United States, by the way, uh, has not ratified. Uh, and uh, that would also uh, provide for uh, a minimal uh, standard of living and um, uh, social, social groups being, being guaranteed rights uh, in their nations. And the United Nations, if, if, if given greater authority, mm. could actually act to enforce those rights. It, it, of course, now we'll hold conferences on, on such things and have investigations of uh, uh, the rights in, in, in places like uh, China uh, or the United States, uh, for that matter, uh-huh. uh, or in, uh, uh, in Burma and, and so on. But it, it, it doesn't have the power to enforce those rights um, or at least uh, take action uh, beyond filing uh, reports on what the status of those rights uh, is. Uh, and therefore, uh, the U.N. could be gre- given a greater authority that it now has in enforcing uh, the rules that are uh, set down by the nations of the world. So they would do that through the uh, 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 peacekeepers, perhaps. That you know, we've seen the uh, what is it, the blue helmets or something like that. That that I mean, how could they uh, enforce it? I guess a the participants in the United Nations, those those nations could uh, at least in theory all agree that the UN deserves that power to enforce uh, the Declaration of Human Rights and the economic and social rights. But boy, there'd be a lot of resistance to that from the various uh, nations that are, uh, you know, America first, uh, China first, whatever. Oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely, and and that's that's one more thing that that has to be overcome. That this notion that, uh, uh, well, uh, that, you know, uh, right wingers in the United States think it's it's uh, perfectly uh, appropriate to. Uh, uh, um, uh, criticize uh, China's uh, human rights record, and, and in fact, it is. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's also appropriate to have a, a criticism by the UN of uh, uh, U.S. Uh, human rights policies, uh, and therefore, uh, well. nations have to uh, stop uh, defending uh, only their own interests and uh, start uh, defending the uh, human interest uh, around the world. And going back in relatively recent history, many of us remember when uh, John Kennedy was president, he talked about how where uh, economic and social reform is made impossible, then revolution is, violent revolution is made inevitable. And in my own history, excuse me, in 1984, uh, I had the honor of of, uh, 
traveling around with uh, George McGovern, who, yes, ran for president again in 1984. And, and he gave a speech again and again about, uh, we, he used to say, and I, I remember almost exactly the quote, we can do more, we, the United States, can do more to dry up the swamplands of despair, which breed communism, now you could replace that with terrorism, with our economic help, our medical help, our educational help, our agricultural help, than with all the military hardware in the world, you know, in our in our vast arsenal. And uh, I think he was right back then. And, you know, just in terms of making sense of, of, of our uh, expenditures, we spend so much money uh, you know, handing it out to military contractors that make all these weapon systems that don't do a thing except gather dust and make them huge profits. But just in terms of, you know, conservative uh, uh, spending, we could do more to do that. I, I wonder about why that's that's not more appealing. I mean, it's just, you know, and I know that, uh, again, being a World War One fanatic, that that as the war began, all these young men were really enthusiastic about going to war. Gosh, it sounds like a lot of fun. But what about the the more dare I say adult and mature attitude that, as McGovern said, <clears throat> if we go in with our economic help, without and and respecting people. Instead of telling them, you know, this is how you have to do it. We know the right way. Do what we say. That's it. The idea of respecting people and offering them uh, help, like we at least theoretically have with the Peace Corps that, that John Kennedy developed. I don't, you know, I don't hear any politicians talking about that these days. Your thoughts? Well, I think they should. And actually, uh, George uh, McGovern got got started uh in terms of his uh, political uh, career, by uh, promoting what was called the uh, Food for Peace uh, oh, that's uh, right. program, uh -huh. uh, which was very popular in his his agricultural uh, state of uh, South Dakota, I really liked to hear that they would they would uh, raise the grain and uh, and so on to be uh, uh -huh. shipped uh -huh. around the world. They would they would sell that to the U.S. government, and the U.S. government would distribute that. And uh, that would be, as uh, McGovern said, uh, a much more effective means of uh, winning friends and influencing people than uh, yes. simply dropping bombs on them. <laughs> you think? <laughs> yeah. yeah. A little bit more persuasive, I think. Now, I've heard it said, and you probably have uh, too, Professor Whitner, that if people of a country had the ability to vote on foreign policy, to decide for themselves if they want to send their young people to war, well, maybe there'd be a lot fewer wars. I personally would like to see democratization of war making. This is a fantasy of mine, I suppose, but what are your thoughts on democratization of war making and foreign policy making? Well, actually, uh, during the 1930s, uh, there was a, a, a very uh, significant attempt made uh, along those lines really? in the United States. Uh, a number of, of uh, senators uh, rallied around uh, what was known as the uh, Ludlow Amendment, huh. uh, which would have 
prevented a U.S. declaration of war <clears throat> unless there was an attack on the United States. Um, uh, but prevented a U.S. declaration of war uh, unless the a, a, a referendum uh, supported that first in the United States. Wow. That is, the public would actually vote on the declaration of war. Well, uh, as you might guess, this didn't get very far, although there was a considerable uh, popular uh, support for it, polls showed. But uh, the government, of, of course, and uh, politicians didn't much like it no. since power out of their hands, uh, and therefore they uh, blocked it. And as, as uh, Nazi uh, aggression uh, grew uh, in Europe, um, and, 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 and finally the uh, Japanese attack on uh, mm-hmm. Pearl Harbor took place, uh, people uh, stopped talking about uh, the, the uh, Ludlow Amendment. Uh, however, there's one other way that uh, foreign policy and war making has been emerging, uh, or a democratization of, mm-hmm. of foreign policy and war making uh, has been emerging in the in the past two two centuries uh, through the rise of peace movements. Uh, these mass movements that have uh, campaigned, for example, uh, against nuclear weapons mm-hmm. and against military intervention and for peace. And, um, you know, that's something new in world history. And while they haven't been totally uh, successful, right. they have actually uh, uh, muted the, um, the uh, nuclear arms race and helped to uh, yes. save us from nuclear war. Uh, and they've, they force governments to, to back off from their uh, mm. natural turn toward, to, toward war and toward using uh, the most powerful weapons they have, uh, nuclear weapons. Um, so that's been a form of uh, democratization that I think we uh, shouldn't ignore. And these, frankly, large minorities' uh, opinions have been a, a proud part of American history. Have they won? No. But they they are significant, and as is obvious that you know, the powers that be would like us peons, you know, just average citizens to believe, no, we don't have any power. There's nothing we can do. Wrong. We have had an effect, as you say, on the nuclear freeze movement, on, on getting us out of our war in Vietnam. It has had an effect. We are not without power. And a good friend of mine who's been on the show a few times, Patrick Lawrence, years ago wrote a remarkably important book, in my opinion, called Time No Longer. That book envisions a world after the American century, one in which all nations are respected and considered equal. Pretty radical, I suppose. Might might it really be time for nationalism and imperialism to end because its usefulness is clearly no longer there? Does that jibe with your sentiments? Is it completely unrealistic? Is it... I, I'm thinking it might be part of the the arc of history that uh, people like Martin Luther King have, have talked about, that it's, it's, it's starting to happen anyway. Um, are there signs that we're moving in that direction despite the fierce resistance of today's reawakened and really reinvigorated nationalists? Your thoughts on that? Well, uh, personally, I think that against the backdrop of thousands of, of years of uh, bloody wars and the ever-present danger of a nuclear holocaust, 
the, the time uh, has arrived to dispense with international anarchy and uh, create a governed world. Uh, governed world. Uh, if enough other uh, people think so too, uh, and are willing uh, to work for it, and I think they are or, or uh, might be in the future, right. uh, we might just get there. So uh, that's my, my vision and my hope. I, I think it's 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 hard starting to happen, and just again, you know, we talk about and you talk about a strengthened United Nations, which obviously is going to scare a lot of people on the right. But you talk about quote a more cohesive in in the United Nations, a more cohesive federation of nations, a federation that would deal with international issues while individual nations could deal with their own domestic issues. I think if, if people could understand that, it might be uh, reasonably saleable. Uh, could you explain that vision? Well, uh, the UN is, is currently a uh, confederation, uh, much like the weak uh, um, uh, and ineffective uh, government uh, provided the United States under the Articles of Confederation. The, the uh, preceding uh, governmental uh, structure of uh -huh. the U.S. Constitution. Um, but the U.N. could be transformed into a more uh, cohesive, effective uh, federation of nations that would uh, bring the, the force of law uh, rather than the law of force to uh, relations uh, among nations around the world. So uh, that's what I would mean by a, a strengthened United Nations, a, a federation rather than a, a weak confederation. Um, and it, it would certainly uh, transform international relations. Well, it sounds good to me. There's so much opportunity out there that, that we're not taking. But I very much appreciate you coming back on the show, uh, Professor Whitner. And if people are interested in uh, reading more of your stuff, there is a website, of course, lawrencewhitner.com. Thank you so much for being with us today and for, uh, for spelling out this uh, quite realistic vision, I think. Thanks so much, uh, Professor Whitner. Yes, well, uh, thank you, Bert, and uh, thank you for, uh, for your great program, too. Ah, gosh, thanks. If you like that discussion, subscribe. Don't miss a single show. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or at the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. <laughs>